Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Thursday, January 16th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, the impeachment update, the Warren-Sanders exchange, Yang's staff as unionized, Walsh protests Republican primary cancellations at RNC headquarters, and a change in Iowa caucus rules might make the outcome confusing. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, the impeachment news in as long as it takes. There is a lot going on. Last night, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi signed the articles of impeachment, and then they were carried by the House impeachment managers over to the Senate. This walk took about two minutes, and an unbelievable number of camera people documented it. There is a video of this in the show notes in case you're curious. It is literally a group of people walking down a hallway, taking a right, and then walking down another hallway. Having said that, it is a historic walk. This morning, those House impeachment managers read the articles in the Senate, then Chief Justice John Roberts was sworn in, and he proceeded to swear in the senators themselves. The senators swore an oath or affirmation to what is called impartial justice. This is an additional oath beyond what senators must take when they swear to uphold the Constitution upon taking office. After that swearing in, the Senate officially sent a summons to President Trump, notifying him of the upcoming trial. Okay, so what happens next? Well, as far as we know today, the trial officially begins on Tuesday. The first thing on that day is for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to introduce an organizing resolution, which will lay out the basic structure of the trial. McConnell has said this will be very similar to the Clinton impeachment trial, and he says he has the votes to pass it. He also says he does not have the votes to simply dismiss the articles, so that possibility is off the table. There will be a trial. If this trial mirrors the Clinton impeachment trial, we're looking at 24 hours for the House impeachment managers to make their case, then another 24 hours for President Trump's legal defense, then there would be another 16 hours for senators to ask questions. There is still an open issue about whether witnesses will be called. We'll just have to wait and see on that one, and a vote on that question might actually come after all this other stuff happens. While Democrats will likely push for a vote on this on Tuesday, do not be surprised when that motion is tabled. And by the way, when I say things like 24 hours, I am referring to clock hours when the Senate is actually in session. So depending on how the trial is scheduled on a daily basis and what kinds of breaks end up happening during each day, this process will take weeks to conclude. I've heard suggestions that the working hours for these sessions may be something like 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. six days a week. So, if we assume maybe an hour's worth of breaks during that working day, that means each of those 24-hour periods would last a full week. I also think it's notable to run down a few rules from a draft document about how the senators must behave during the trial. So here are a few highlights. First off, no phones or electronic devices of any kind are allowed to be brought in by senators. Senators must be silent during the trial and not even speak to the senators sitting next to them. The only reading material brought into the chamber must be pertinent to the trial. 
so nobody's just going to kick back and like read a Stephen King book. There are more rules, but I can summarize them as sit down, shut up, pay attention, and respect the Chief Justice. This is no joke, folks. Okay, so that's a bunch of procedural stuff. What else is going on in impeachment land? Well, the big one is a bunch of new documents provided to the House by Lev Parnas, one of the indicted associates of Rudy Giuliani. Parnas has done several interviews about his involvement in the Ukraine affair, the most notable so far being on the Rachel Maddow show last night. By the way, there are other documents in addition to the Parnas stuff, but let's just stick with him for a moment. Let me read you part of what he told Maddow. Quote, President Trump knew exactly what was going on. He was aware of all my movements. I wouldn't do anything without the consent of Rudy Giuliani or the president. I have no intent, I have no reason to speak to any of these officials. I mean, they have no reason to speak to me. Why would President Zelensky's inner circle, or Minister Avakov, or all these people, or President Poroshenko, meet with me? Who am I? They were told to meet with me, and that's the secret that they're trying to keep. I was on the ground doing their work. End quote. In response, a variety of Republicans, including the White House press secretary, have pushed back on these statements and said Mr. Parnas is straight up lying. He is currently under indictment for campaign finance violations, and he did not do these media interviews under oath, so maybe he's making stuff up. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but if that is the defense against these allegations, we could put the man under oath in the Senate and ask him again. And if he then lies under oath, he's got bigger problems than the existing campaign finance stuff. So, okay, moving on. The other big development in the last 24 hours is related to former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. Two big things here. In the recently released documents, there is evidence suggesting that her movements were being tracked. She was under surveillance. Part of this circles back to Robert Hyde, who is running for Congress in Connecticut. Hyde has denied that he was tracking the ambassador and that his written notes about that to Parnas about her location were just jokes. But Ukraine itself has now opened up an investigation into this issue. Ukraine's Ministry of Internal Affairs is looking into this stuff with Yovanovitch because if it's true, it may violate Ukrainian or even international law related to the rights of diplomats. Twenty twenty, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, now for a story you've probably already heard, but we're going to cover anyway. After the debate on Tuesday, TV viewers saw, but did not hear, a brief discussion between Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders, as Tom Steyer stood right behind them, mostly being ignored. This came after a debate exchange about women running for president that Glenn covered in detail yesterday. The audio of that conversation has now been released by CNN. I'm going to read you the transcript of that, and then we're going to talk about what happened next. Okay, beginning of transcript. Warren, I think you called me a liar on national TV. Sanders, what? Warren, I think you called me a liar on national TV. Sanders, you know, let's not do it right now. If you want to have that discussion, we'll have that discussion. Warren, anytime. Sanders, you called me a liar. You told me, all right, let's not do it now. Steyer, I don't want to get in the middle of it. I just want to say, hi, Bernie. Sanders, yeah, good. Okay. End of transcript. Okay, so that is what was said, and that launched an immense battle on Twitter and elsewhere among supporters of each candidate. But immediately, a massive coalition of progressive groups jumped on this issue in an attempt to put out the fire. I think that is more of the story today than that exchange by those candidates, because unity between those candidates and their voters may make a huge difference in the outcome of this primary. Reading from a story by Jonathan Easley for The Hill, quote, 18 progressive groups have signed a unity pledge, vowing to keep their fire trained on the corporate wing of the Democratic Party amid a burgeoning feud between Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren that has split the left. The signers include seven groups who back Sanders' 2020 presidential bid and two that back Warren's. The remaining nine groups are either supportive of both candidates, such as Democracy for America, or have not endorsed anyone yet. The three-part pledge says the groups will focus our fight for the nomination against candidates supported by the corporate wing instead of fighting each other. The groups say they're committed to ensuring a progressive candidate wins the Democratic Party's presidential nomination and that they'll join forces to ensure that candidate ultimately defeats President Trump. End quote. So it appears the intent here is to de-escalate this issue as quickly as possible. In fact, Jane O'Meara Sanders made a statement to the Associated Press saying, quote, I think that discussion is over. End quote. Senator Sanders himself then retweeted that and has not mentioned it since. Next up, entrepreneur Andrew Yang's campaign staff have unionized. This actually happened last week, but I missed it in the lead-up to the debate. Reading from an article by Yelena Genova for CNBC, quote, Staffers for Andrew Yang announced Thursday that they have joined the Campaign Workers Guild the most recent campaign unionization effort among the 2020 Democratic candidates for president. 
Today marks a victory not only for our workers, but for campaign staff across the country, asking for improved labor provisions, asking for appreciation as a collective whole, and asking for a chance to be recognized as more than simply an employee. Chad Comey, a Yang campaign worker, said in an email announcing the move, end quote. And let's add some context because a lot of media outlets have gotten some details on these union stories a little bit wrong. They usually leave out major candidates whose staff have joined unions. So here is the list, as far as my research can tell, of campaigns that are unionized or were unionized or are in the process of doing so right now. Booker, Buttigieg, Castro, Sanders, Swalwell, Warren, and Yang. And yes, I know some of those campaigns are over now, but still. The other thing to note is that Sanders did it first, and that clearly set a trend among Democratic primary candidates. Meanwhile, in the Republican primary, former Representative Joe Walsh showed up at the Republican National Committee's headquarters this morning to protest the cancellation of so many Republican primaries. Prior to the protest, Walsh said he had contacted RNC Chair Ronna Romney McDaniel to discuss the issue, but had not been able to get a meeting. Walsh's campaign wrote in an email, quote, It is unconscionable the Republican Party would be limiting the voices of voters at a time when the president continues to become embroiled in scandal after scandal, end quote. According to a tally by The Hill, eight states are either holding no Republican primary or one that only includes President Trump on the ballot or some combo of those two that adds up to the same effect. Those states include Alaska, Arizona, Hawaii, Kansas, Minnesota, Nevada, South Carolina, Virginia, and Wisconsin. And last up today, there is what seems like a minor change to the caucus rules in Iowa that actually might be what Politico calls a hot mess. Reading from a story by Natasha Karecki and Stephen Shepard, quote, For the first time in the history of Iowa's Democratic caucuses, the party will report the raw vote count for each candidate. And because of idiosyncrasies in the caucus process, the person with the most votes at the beginning won't necessarily be the one with the biggest delegate hall at the end. Think of it as Iowa's version of the 2016 Electoral College issue. Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump handily in the popular vote total, but lost the ultimate battle for electoral votes because of her failure in a handful of key places. End quote. So, there are a few obvious questions here. First, why is this new rule in place at all? Well, basically, the Democratic Party asked for it after 2016. They wanted this kind of reporting for transparency, so candidates and the party itself could better understand the details of the caucus process. The second obvious question is, basically, who cares? Like, why is this potentially a problem? And there it gets into the deep, wonky weirdness of Iowa Democratic caucuses. As we've discussed probably too many times on this show, in Iowa, voters have a first choice. But within your given caucus location, you may well have to give up your first choice and move to a second choice. And now, for the first time, you'll be writing down that first choice on a piece of paper along with your name. That's new. And if your first choice doesn't make it, you flip over the paper and mark your second choice. So now, we will have a paper trail of how each little caucus happened in detail. 
There are nearly 1,700 Iowa precincts, and those are a lot like state votes in a national election. It's a great data point to know the raw overall vote count, and frankly, having a paper trail seems smart to me. But because that raw vote count is not how the system ultimately selects a winner, it provides a second path for candidates to claim that they won. They can say, "Okay, look, I won the first choice vote, but I didn't end up with the overall delegates that would match that because it's all decided in a bunch of individual areas." Or, for instance, a lower polling candidate could say, "Hey, look at all these people who wanted to vote for me. I was their first choice, but I couldn't make the math work to win. But in a regular primary, I would have done a lot better." That's a fair argument. And we already have polling that suggests Iowa has multiple candidates bunched up at the top. Now, yeah, it's likely that one of them will get the highest percentage of delegates in the state. But Iowa doesn't have a lot of delegates compared to a big state like, say, California, which votes later in the cycle. The point of winning Iowa is not to get their precious delegates. The point of winning Iowa is to say. I won Iowa. I won first. I did well in the first contest. So other voters can trust that I might do well in other states and then nationally. That's a big part of what propelled President Obama to his eventual national victory. And when the condition for winning Iowa is now three pieces of data—the first choices, the second choices, and the overall delegate count—it is now much more complicated to make a simple case to a voter that you are a successful candidate in Iowa. Reading once more from Politico: "Quote: If any of this stuff is close, their people will just be flaming and lighting each other up and saying there was fraud," said John Lapp, the Iowa State Director for then Representative Dick Gephardt, during the Missouri Congressman's 2004 presidential campaign. I certainly don't envy the Iowa Democratic Party for trying to tabulate the results, but party leaders say the changes, including a system to count heads, a paper trail, and disclosure of vote totals. Gives Democrats tools they've never had, including the ability for parties to order a recount if they meet requirements. End quote. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter at Chris Higgins or on the web at chrishiggins.com. All right, folks, the predicted possible snow apocalypse for Portland did not happen. We had a few brief flurries over the past couple of days, which was cool to look at, but no snow days and no panic to cover the fragile flowers and stuff. In fact, I am already seeing signs of spring as the early bulbs push their way up through the blanket of wet leaves that I didn't bother to rake up in the fall. So spring comes to the yarden as the political world keeps turning. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.